Well, do have your Bibles open uh, with me at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. So last week we recommenced our study in the Gospel of John. Um, and we took our first tentative steps into chapter 13, where we're considering what is commonly known as Jesus's farewell discourse. And if you want to sort of get an idea of where we're going, over the next few months, we're going to spend most of our time lingering in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples as Jesus prepares them for what is ahead of them. There was an old Scottish minister in the 19th century called Charles Ross. He's written a book, and it's called The Inner Sanctuary. And that book is on Jesus' farewell discourse. He said that this is, if you like, the inner sanctuary of the Gospel of John and indeed the entire Bible. This is the Holy of Holies, because here the veil is lifted from who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We get to see him and marvel at him. And so as we come to this passage, metaphorically speaking, we stand on holy ground. John invites us to eavesdrop as Jesus has these really intimate conversations with his disciples. Now, what we're going to see is that this is the eve of, eve of Jesus' death, and in a matter of hours, he will be nailed to a wooden cross. And so what he has to say to his disciples in this context is so vitally important for them. Last week, when we looked at verses 1 through 17, the theme that dominated was that of love. Jesus stooped down from his position and place of honor at the table, and he knelt down to wash his disciples' filthy feet. And we said that, that was, he, was, he was showing them the character and the extent of his love. The character of his love, it's humble love. The extent of his love, it will stoop down to the greatest depths for his people. And one of the things we unpacked when we were thinking about the meaning of Jesus' foot washing action was this. It was an enacted parable. It was a prophetic action. It was done to point the disciples to what Jesus came into this world to do. Just as he physically washed their feet, so Jesus came into this world to spiritually cleanse sinners, to wash us. And then after we considered the meaning of the act, we then looked at the application. Jesus said we are to emulate his example. In fact, we looked at the lost beatitude. In verse 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, if you know who Jesus is and what he's come to do, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you live a life of servant, service. Well, this morning we transition into the second half of this chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 38. And here Jesus will prepare his disciples for his impending death and departure by predicting what is going to happen in the lives of two of them, two of his disciples. First of all, Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus. And secondly, Peter, Simon Peter, will deny Jesus. 
I don't know if it's ever struck you before when you were reading the New Testament that in all of the Gospels, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the authors weave the betrayal of Judas Iscariot with the denial of Simon Peter. They go hand in hand. And I think that part of the purpose of that is so that we can see, one, into the heart of Jesus for his people, and two, so that we can see into the heart of his people's. And Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot gave us a perfect picture of our own hearts. And so as we look at them this morning, we're going to see that there are great similarities between them both, but it's the differences. It's the differences that are hugely significant. Two points. Judas and Jesus. Simon Peter and Jesus. So let's begin. Judas and Jesus. As we pick things up in verse 21, Jesus has just washed their feet. He's just explained its meaning. He's just applied it to our lives. And then we read these words, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And this statement from John comes like a bolt from the blue. We're not expecting it. Jesus has just performed this amazing act of love. And the next thing we know is that Jesus is deeply distressed. One minute everything seemed fine. Now all of a sudden, everything is not fine. Jesus is deeply distressed and in a very visceral way. John clearly noted it and he never forgot it. It's one of the rare occasions when the reality of what's going on in Jesus' soul appears in his face. See, see when it says there, he was troubled in his spirit. The word troubled there is the exact same word that was used back in John chapter 5 when it spoke about the angel who would stir up the waters at the pool of Siloam. In other words, Jesus, on the inside, felt deep, seated agitation. A deep unsettling of his spirit. And the the question is, why? Well, look at what he says next. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What caused Jesus to feel deep anguish in his soul was that he knew in their midst was a traitor. He knew that one of the twelve one of his closest friends, one of his dearest disciples, was going to betray him. I don't know if you've experienced betrayal in your own life. If you have, you don't need to tell me that betrayal is one of the darkest human experiences to endure. And just for partial application... It's comforting to know that Jesus understands fully what betrayal is like. And here Jesus 
is deeply distressed because he's about to be betrayed, not by an enemy, but by a close and trusted friend. Someone he spent the last three years with. Someone with whom he trained and taught and shared meals with. Someone that he entrusted the role of treasurer to. Someone that we, 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 it may be the case, we don't know this for sure, that was sitting in a position of honor at that table right next to him. It may have been John on the one side and Judas on the other side. Someone who just a few moments ago, Jesus knelt down before and in a manifestation of his humble love, washed his dirty feet. By the way, here is where we get an insight into the disposition of Jesus towards Judas. Love. Jesus in love got down and washed the dirt from his feet. Knowing fully that Judas would get up that evening and walk back into the dirt and the dust of Jerusalem's night with the single intention of having the Savior of the world murdered. The three verses that we didn't read this week are verses 18 and through to 20. In verse 18, Jesus said, after he performed the foot washing, as he applied it, he then said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In other words, Jesus is fully aware that Judas's betrayal will happen in fulfillment of scripture. And the scripture that Jesus Uh, speaks of is Psalm 41 verse 9, where King David remembers this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, I don't know if you know this, but one of the most heinous crimes you could commit in ancient Near Eastern culture was to betray someone you knew and you trusted. And who trusted you? But most heinous of all crimes was to betray someone with whom you shared table fellowship, with whom you shared bread with. In Near Eastern culture, that is the sign of intimate relationship. And here Judas Iscariot, as they sit having this meal, will betray Jesus. It goes without saying, you you could probably that evening have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And isn't it fascinating that John, he moves our attention from focusing on the love of Jesus to now thinking about the treachery of Judas. One minute we're, th- we're looking at Jesus and we're seeing that inside he's in deep turmoil. And then the next minute, after Jesus says, truly, truly, one of you will betray me, John has us, look- has us looking at the disciples who are looking at one another. And there's this look of bewilderment 
plastered all over their faces. Look at what it says. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. It's as if John wants us to picture in our mind's eyes the sheer look of bewilderment that this announcement made, that this announcement produced in them. They were completely taken aback. And if just a moment ago we could read what was going on in Jesus' soul from the way his face looked, well, so too now. We can see what's going on in these disciples. They're perplexed. Who is going to betray Jesus? Who is it? And fascinatingly, in two of the other Gospels, we read at this moment, each of the disciples round the table said, Is it I, Lord? Is it me? But just note this, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 26, verse, I think, 22, Judas asked Jesus directly the same question, but with a little difference. He didn't say, is it I, Lord? He said, is it I, Rabbi? And you have to wonder, did the reason he didn't say Lord was because he thought he would get stuck in his throat? Because he knew who he was? He knew he was the traitor? Now, now at this point, Simon Peter takes initiative. He's desperate to find out who it is. And Peter pipes up, but this time he doesn't speak. He doesn't burst into conversation. He, he motions to John, who's reclining on Jesus. And he says, John, ask Jesus, who is it? Who is it? And, and, and do you know what I love? Read the verses, right? Verse 23 and 24. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And, and, and this is, just, just indulge me for a moment. This is brilliant on John's part. In the midst of this story, John introduces himself. He's the unnamed disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And I would argue, in my humble opinion, this is arguably one of the most revealing statements made by any disciples, any of the disciples in the Gospels. John here reveals that he understands who he is. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Why would he know that about himself? Because what has Jesus just done? He's washed his feet. What was the foot washing act all about? It was a manifestation of Jesus' love. He was overwhelmed at the love that he received from Jesus. And, and just so you know, John was not being arrogant in the slightest by describing himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Listen to Don Carson. The descriptor implies not arrogance as if to say I'm more loved than the others, but a profound sense of his indebtedness to grace. What wonder John had that he should be loved by Jesus. 
Here's John, and he's reclining at the table of the Last Supper, and he is deeply aware that he is profoundly loved by Jesus. Can I just press pause for a moment longer? This morning we're going to come to the Lord's table. This morning we're going to enjoy this meal. And the question is, brother, sister, do you realize how profoundly loved you are by Jesus? Do you realize that this meal is given to us to remind us of what Jesus came into this world to do for us, to die so that our sins could be forgiven? In taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And the Lord's death is what? It is the greatest demonstration of God's love for his people. The Lord's Supper is given to us to assure us that Christ loves us. John reminds us here what you and I are prone to forget. Our identity is we are loved by Jesus. Now back to the scene. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Now, it doesn't say this. We don't know. But it certainly looks like it. John whispered this question. Lord, who is it? Why do I say that? Because in verses 27 through 30, it's clear that the disciples don't hear what was the sign that would reveal the betrayer. And so Jesus responded to John, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon and Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So you see, Even at this moment, the disciples have got no idea what's going on. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And it was night. Quite literally, it was night. But when John says it was night, he also means, and the darkness of hell engulfed Judas. Just before we look at the lessons we can learn from Judas Iscariot, I want you to see something that gives us real insight into the disposition of Jesus. The way in which Jesus identified his betrayer was by handing him bread that had been dipped. And everyone in the ancient Near East knew that 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 was a gesture of love and affection. To share bread was to say, I trust you, and I love you. I know you. Now, you need to understand that as we work our way through this passage, Jesus knows who Judas is. Jesus knows what Judas will do. But even here, knowing that Jesus, in many ways, wants to still speak to his conscience, and he wants the love of God to speak to him, You see, it's the love of God, the kindness of God that will lead any man to repentance. And in this last gesture of love, Judas 
takes the bread, but he spurns the love that lay behind it. And immediately he gets up and he walks out. And Judas said these words ringing in his ears. What you are going to do, do quickly. And that statement of Jesus tells us this. Jesus did not die as a helpless victim. Jesus died as a sovereign savior who was in complete control. And I believe there are all kinds of lessons that we can draw from this event of Judas's betrayal. You know what we learn? We learn the difference, that there is a major difference between what someone presents on the outside and what can be going on on the inside. You know, maybe as we read through through this passage, you you may have thought to yourself, you know, if I'd been one of the disciples, I'd have been able to tell you that Judas was a traitor. There's not a chance you would have. These 11 disciples, his friends, had walked with him, talked with him, lived with him, shared meals with him, studied with him, listened to Jesus together with them. They'd lived together in intimate relationships. They knew Judas more than we know some of our closest friends and family members. And they could not tell the difference between the outside and the inside of him. You see, outward appearances, Judas just was like one of them. There was no cause for concern. There was nothing amiss. In fact, he was the trusted one. He had the money bag. He was a treasurer. And underlines for us that there can be warning. There can be people who who look on the outside like they are Christians and the reality on the inside tells a completely different story. And you might be able to deceive others if you're in that situation, but you cannot deceive God. Now, you know know what else we learn from Judas? We learn that Satan entered into him. And some people want to say that the reason that that Judas betrayed Jesus is because Satan took hold of him. But see, when you read through John's gospel, you get the sense that, that Satan took hold of Judas because there was something to take hold of. You see, back in John chapter 12, just one page behind, the very start of it, there's that scene in Bethany where Jesus is anointed by Mary with that expensive perfume, and who is it that protests? It's Judas. And John puts it like this, but Judas Iscariot, one of his 12, he who was about to betray him said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Let me say that again. The reason Satan was able to take hold of Judas was because there was something to take hold of. That is, this man was leading a double life and he would not take it to Jesus and confess it and admit the reality of who he was. And his sin, well, it mastered him. And Satan took hold of him. And Satan had a foothold in his life. If we devote our heart's affection to our secret sins and we never confess them to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Don't be surprised when they master us and they destroy our spiritual life. And Satan takes hold of us. So there we have it. Judas and Jesus. Now, with the time we've got left, just let's look at Jesus and Simon Peter. Now, what is so fascinating? We've, we've, we've just like gone from Jesus doing this most loving act at the start of the passage into this dark, foreboding atmosphere. And then the instant that Judas leaves, it's like someone walks into the upper room and turns on the light, opens the windows. It's like this dark, foreboding atmosphere just disappears. Because within seconds, Jesus says, in verse 31, when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Then Jesus, taking the posture of the Father at the Passover meal says, now little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I, I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you, do you see it? There's this huge twist again. We've had the twist of Jesus being deeply distressed, the disciples being perplexed and bewildered at who's going to deny Jesus, the, the discovery that it's Judas, and now Jesus is boasting and glorying in the cross. His hour to be glorified has come. He is now the Son of Man who is glorified, and this God is going also to be glorified right there and then. And, and, and just to add to it, Jesus says, guys, I want you to know, I want you to know there's a new commandment. And he takes an old commandment and repeats it to them. <laughs> I don't think it's a mistake. That Jesus gets deeply intimate and personal with his disciples when the one who is filled with hate and Satan left the room. You see, he didn't have ears to hear what the Son of God had to say. He didn't understand the love of God. He spurned it. He shunned it. He rejected it. He walked away. Now, as the middle of and Jesus in all this thing, Peter now musters up the guts to speak to Jesus. He hears what Jesus has just said in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> you may have not asked him, who is it? But now he's saying, okay, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, if we've just had an insight into the heart of Judas, now we get a real insight into the heart of Peter. And Peter sounds so much like me, and I suspect you, he says to Jesus, Jesus, I want to know where you're going. And I suspect that when you talk about you're going to go somewhere, it sounds like you're going to go and there's going to be a battle. There's going to be a cosmic conflict. But Jesus, don't worry. I'll lay down my life for you. Just I'll go to you. I'll go with you to the very end. And here's the tragedy. Peter does not at this point know his own heart. <laughs> 
Peter at this point does not know that his heart is prone to wander and to leave the God that he loves. And so Jesus answered Peter. He looked him in the eye and it's such a soul-searching, heart-searching question from Jesus. Will you lay down your life for me? That is the question, Peter. Who's going to do the laying down of lives? Now, it is true. Peter did die as a martyr, martyr for the faith. But Jesus and Jesus alone laid down his life in the real sense for Peter and for his salvation. And Peter, Jesus then looks Peter in the eye and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, I need you to know this, that the atmosphere has changed, and you might not hear it, but Jesus has just given Peter, in, in light of giving this prophecy that he's about to deny him, he's also given Peter this unbelievable hope. Do you see it? It's verse 36b. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are going to be with me in glory. You are going to fail me. Your heart is fickle, and you're going to deny me three times. But Peter, I am going to restore you, and you're going to be with me. It's interesting, in Luke's account, it's really, really, really profound. It says in Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus prayed this, Simon, you said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now just think about that. There was a vulnerability in Peter. Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now here's the million dollar question. What's the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot? What's the difference? Well, with Judas Iscariot, he, he never once felt a pang when he was going about his life and stealing from the money bag. And when Jesus knelt down and washed his feet, and when Jesus offered him a morsel of bread, he spurned the kindness of God and we know that when he did break down and cry, it wasn't tears because he'd failed the Lord Jesus Christ. It was tears because of what he'd done to himself. And that makes sense. Because remember, he was the one who said, is it I, Rabbi? He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't submit and bend the knee to Jesus. He didn't receive the love of Christ. Now, what's the difference with Simon, Peter? Well, he failed Jesus. That for sure happened. The prophecy came to pass there in the courtyard. But do you know why he was in the courtyard? 
because he didn't want to leave Jesus. He knew that Jesus was upstairs on trial. And even after he denied him on the third time and he heard the cock crow, it says that he caught the eyes of Jesus and when he saw Jesus look at him, he broke down and he wept bitterly. And these were tears of genuine repentance because he knew he'd sinned against the one who loved him and the one who spoke the word of God to him and said, Simon, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he remembered the word of the Lord. You might be here this morning and you are a genuine Christian and the question you ask yourself as you hear a sermon like this is, Lord, is it I? Lord, am I one of those people who are living a life that I'm very vulnerable to taking hold of me and I'm going to abandon you and depart from you? And if you ask that question, don't worry, you're in good company. Many of us wonder. But you know, here's the revealing thing. You might doubt yourself, but the one you cannot doubt is Lord. The Lord who loved by dying for your sins. The Lord who promised to forgive you your sins if you confess them. The Lord who said to his disciples, I have prayed for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the difference between Simon, Peter, and Judas Iscariot was Simon Peter responded to the kindness of God and it led him to repentance. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to be assured of God's love, if you're here and you're a believer this morning, this is a perfect opportunity to to confess your sin afresh and come be assured of his love. If you're here this morning, you're living a double life, You profess faith, but perhaps you don't possess Christ. Take heed. The one who shared bread with the Lord Jesus Christ went out that night and the darkness engulfed him. Take heed. Let's pray.